Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading figures from the world of sustainability and explore the sustainability agenda in marketing and strategy, technology, innovation, investment and finance. We look at the latest thinking, what's working and the future and evolution of the sustainability agenda. The first thing is about just how down the toilet tube we are at the moment how extreme and serious the consequences we are entertaining for the future are given how pleasant life seems to be for the top billion people in the planet in places like Europe and the US and Japan. The climate scientists of the world are telling us that we are tracking beautifully and perfectly on the worst possible trajectory of climate change. Green bonds, climate bonds, are merely an expression of investor interest in these solutions. They're an example of the kind of financial instruments that can make the difference. And that's really what we're seeing at this market, and it's working. As the market goes, everyone says, oh, at last, something I can do. It's simple, it's easy, it addresses my stakeholder interest, and bingo, they start investing, which is why we see continual oversubscription. I'm very pleased today to introduce Sean Kidney, Sean's the CEO and co-founder of the Climate Bonds Initiative, which is focused on mobilising the world's largest capital market, the 100 trillion bond market, for climate change solutions. Sean works on promoting investment priorities for climate and green bonds on how governments can take advantage of the green bonds market and the development of international collaborations. Sean's also chair of the Climate Bond Standards Board, whose members represent more than $34 trillion of assets under management. Thank you very much, Sean, for taking the time today to speak to the Sustainability Agenda. You're welcome. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Great to have an opportunity to talk to you about the great work that you do. Can you tell me a little bit about what you do and how you came to be involved? We're a small NGO with a bit of a mission. Our mission is to mobilise debt capital finance for climate solutions. You probably know a little bit about climate change. You may not know a couple of important things about climate change. The first thing is about just how down the toilet tube we are at the moment, how extreme and serious the consequences we are entertaining for the future are, given how pleasant life seems to be for the top billion people on the planet in places like Europe and the US and Japan. The climate scientists of the world are telling us that we are tracking beautifully and perfectly on the worst possible trajectory of climate change under the various scenarios the International Panel of Climate Change has laid out. And we have been for some years. Emissions have, in fact, been increasing over the last 20 years per annum. The rate of, has been increasing rather than reducing on average. We have a couple of blips in that period, like that, straight after the crash. The consequences of this, according to the International Energy Agency CEO, Fatih Birol, and this is the agency that coordinates the World Petroleum Reserves, by the way, this is not some radical Greenpeace. According to the International Energy Agency, we will see on current trajectory an average of six to seven degrees warming by the end of the century. We've had about one degree so far, a little under one degree. That will be unevenly distributed because the different absorption capacities of ocean, land, etc. It'll be about 10 degrees average over land. Again, a bit unevenly distributed. It'll be in the Arctic in particular, and the Antarctic, where, by the way, all that ice sits. 
we'll see the highest temperature increases, 14 degrees. We're beginning to see the impact on the Arctic of just the one degree we've had, or less than one degree, with the dramatic reduction in sea ice coverage in summer, which is in itself accelerating the warming of the Arctic Ocean because blue absorbs more heat than white, which is accelerating the release of greenhouse gases, that is, clathrates, methane trapped under the sea of the Siberian ice shelf from forests that died hundreds of millions of years ago. And we are already seeing a spike in what are called one of what are called feedback loops, which is a spike as a result of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere in the last 10 years or so, which is further accelerating this transition. In other words, suddenly everything's speeding up. You've got your button on a movie camera, fast forward button, and we've gone from one speed to two speed in 20 years instead of the 40 years that some people thought it would take. There are many other feedback loops they are beginning to cut in or we are risking cutting in. For example, as water melts off of Greenland from the ice cap, and it's, we've discovered in the last 12 months that it's actually melting at a much faster rate than anyone had thought, we change the ratio of fresh water and salt water in the northern seas, and that changes the flow of currents and essentially leads to a possible collapse of the Gulf Stream, a reduction, dramatic reduction. The Gulf Stream is already much weaker the last couple of years. And that changes the climate and of northern Europe in particular and changes a whole lot of other things about absorption capacities of oceans and so on. There are many of these feedback loops, but these are not theoretical anymore. They've been theoretical largely. Taking it back to Siberia, there was a Danish research vessel that came back earlier last year from a survey of the Siberian Ocean who reported seeing methane plumes. This is bubbling uh, bubbles of methane gas coming up from under the ocean, one kilometer wide, numerous of these across the Siberian Sea. This is the beginning of that shot into the arm of greenhouse gas from old frozen forests being warmed up because the Arctic sea warm that I mentioned to you earlier. This is the beginning of a feedback loop. When these feedback loops get going at scale, and we don't know whether that's happening now or whether it's going to take another five years because this is a bit of new territory for us, what we do know is we start losing the opportunity to put a break on these climactic changes, and we just have to go straight for adaptation. We have about maybe five years, if we're lucky, to make significant dent in emissions to be able to avert the worst. We've left this so late that unfortunately it's now all but certain that we will see two degree temperature rises by about the middle of this century and two meter sea level rises at minimum and a whole exaggeration of intensity of weather incidents rising from intensity of movements between heat and cold in the atmosphere. So think the current heat wave that India is experiencing very early in its summer season, where we've seen 47 degree, 50 degree temperatures week after week after week across northern India, thousands of people dying, the government having to truck water around to villages because all their wells are drying up, 
this is an example of an increased intensity of weather incidents which arises because of the climate change we're already experiencing. El Nino, which is the short-term reason for many of the climate impacts that are being felt in California and Peru and Australia, has changed in characteristics since we started observing it. It has become more intense when it happens, and it's sped up a bit. We get them more frequently. These are things that we would expect from changes of climate. So we already have an adaptation agenda because we now have to reconfigure our infrastructure and societies to make sure that we don't get bowled over every time a major environmental catastrophe happens as a result of cyclones or droughts or floods, which is what we're going to experience much more in the future. In fact, pretty well every part of society and infrastructure has to batten down the hatches for a tough period every few years. That'll be the London Gateway being breached in 2025 unless we do massive investment in that particular infrastructure to make it higher, to make sure storm surges better, or it'll be more intense cyclones the Philippines. So these are things that are material and immediate. I mean, the really bad news is if we do lose control of our ability to put the brakes on catastrophic climate change and the German government's advisor on climate change, Johann Schellenhuber, says that the difference between two degrees and four degrees warming is civilization, is his view. If we do lose control, we do see, well, you know, Jim Hansen, who used to be the head of the NASA's Oceanic Administration, the, the climate change team from NASA, retired now, publishing a bit more freely without prevention by government, has put out a paper recently where he's now thinking there'll be six to seven degree, meter sea level rises in the latter half of this century. Well, there's Florida, gone. There's the Ganges Delta, or at least Bengal, both Bangladesh and Indian Bengal, pretty well gone. There's the Mekong Delta, which is the world's rice bowl, the place where the largest exporter of rice in the world, gone entirely. It's all underwater. That's what you're looking at, these kinds of dramatic transitions. And, of course, these are where the world's people are concentrated. These are the places where we are going to suffer extraordinary impacts of climate change, where we are going to get hundreds of millions of people on the move trying to find new homes as a result of severe weather incidents and increasing sea level rise underlying those weather incidents on an increasing scale over the course of the century. That's not a world that's very easy to manage. That's a world of imploded states. Think Somalia everywhere. That's a world of collapsing globalization. And, of course, in other areas, desertification. In northern India, we expect the monsoon to fail one in five years under these changed climate conditions. What does that happen? What does that mean for the 100 million people who live in Pakistan who are already a very fragile economy depending on the Indus River, which gets money from glaciers that are currently melting at a rapid rate and an annual monsoon? You know, we are dicing with an extraordinarily grim future. The way I look at it, if you've ever seen Lord of the Rings, we are currently on the path to Mordor, and we haven't chosen to get off it at all yet. We are walking directly down the superhighway to Mordor. Terrifying, as you say. When you talk about it like that, it seems that we have a better understanding of the scale of this problem and what's at stake. So now I'm going to give you two bits of good news. 
But I say this because it is really critical that we understand the stakes here. You know, we're not actually dicing or something small. We're, this is a really challenging issue. We do have two opportunities to move in the short term. And they're pretty big ones if we take the action. The first thing, and let me go back to the International Energy Agency then and its forecast for how we might address this catastrophe that they're predicting or projecting. The bulk of investment to be made is in what I'm going to call green infrastructure. The bulk of what we have to do to fix this problem is to grow a class of infrastructure that focuses on mitigation and also adaptation and resilience. That means, let me be clear, clean energy, yes, any kind of clean energy. Coal has to be closed down fast. By the time the 2030s go, come, we should be closing down every single coal-fired power station in the world unless CCS is built in, which would be great, but I'm not sure it's going to happen. We need to be phasing out gas in the 2030s. That's the energy story. We need to be shifting to clean energy of all sorts. That's one. Two is we need to shift mobility from fossil fuels. By 2050, there can be no fossil fuel-based cars on the planet. Gone, dead. It's electric, hydrogen, whatever you like. Probably, hopefully, much more efficiently, a dramatic shift to mass transit, bicycles, and maybe Uber, Zipcar, podcasts for the rest of us who have to get to places where we can't get to those other means. Luckily, technology is working on that and new business models. So that's the revolution in transport. In aviation, we've got a shift to biofuels. Fossil fuels gone by the by 2050. Now that's going to mean a very careful management regime around our bioresources to make sure we don't impact on food prices and on forests. Governance is of the essence to make this transition work. We're seeing now what good governance around agricultural and forestry resources can look like in Brazil, thanks to the last 10 years of reform and their recent forest law. It doesn't exist in Indonesia or the Congo yet. These are global challenges in that particular area. The third area is water. Water, from a mitigation point of view, consumes some 7% of the world's electricity and pumps wandering around and about 17% in California. Reduce that energy with newer systems and less long-distance pumping, you can save a ton of energy, and that helps our energy agenda. On the adaptation side, all water infrastructure, all work in water, has to now address the significant risks of rainfall variability, desertification, monsoonal kind conditions. Even Boston, which is used to soft rain like the UK, is now planning, because they've got a good climate change adaptation plan, to widen their stormwater drains because they're going to get more dumps now and less gentle rain throughout the year. These are the sort of changes that we have to start making on the adaptation side while we're rapidly tackling mitigation. Because adaptation is now, now, not in 10 years. Our cities have to change their character. A low-carbon city is a dense city. It's a mass transit, walking, and bicycle-focused city. It's also a city full of cafes and street life, by the way. There are some very nice aspects to a well-designed, low-carbon city. It should be a city full of trees to lower heat spots as well. This is a challenge for city planners. This is a challenge for development agencies supporting developing countries where all the new cities of the next 30 years are going to be built, and there's going to be a lot of them. 
you get a sense of the agenda. Most of this stuff, most of this stuff can be designed to be investable. It doesn't need to be a tax that does this stuff. Sure, if a government builds a railway, that's great. But let's think about how we make the railway sign more investable. Let's think about how we make it more doable. There's a company in Hong Kong called MTR, which is a public sector company, by the way, which builds railway lines as property development. When they build a subway and they've got the contract to do it in Shenzhen, a city of 20 million next door, they get the rights for high, intense development above each station where they build shopping centres, commercial quarters, and residential towers that gives them traffic to the station, which improves the financial viability of the subway line. And with the capital gains from an intense property development over every station, they pay for the subway. So suddenly, a subway, which is essentially a 100-year investment, which we're always trying to pay for in 20 or 25-year bonds or whatever, in other words, the financing profile doesn't match the investment or a return, suddenly becomes viable. You're optimistic that new business models and new financing structures will allow investment into this kind of infrastructure. So I guess my main point is that all of this sort of stuff is stuff we actually know how to do. You know, the financial technology of how you finance infrastructure is well and truly known. That's how we built our cities in the last 150 years. So there's nothing new required here. All we, all we need to do is to start focusing on the green policy priority within it and ensuring that when we provide a floor pricing for something, which is what we do for tollways all the time, we don't do it for tollways anymore. We do it for mass transit or other tools. That's really all that's required. So that gives me hope. In other words, we know how to finance it. We know how to use the public sector balance sheet or regulation and policy to ensure that hospitals are built or roads are built. We know, it, we, we know how to do that. Nothing new about that. The second thing that you know, is important to note by way of hope is that we have a world of washing capital. You know, we have more capital on the planet now than ever before in the history of the planet. And in fact, more than that, we have more capital on the planet now looking for deals with some caveats than ever before in the history of the planet. All those pension funds and insurance funds in Europe, the US and Japan, have a real problem because they have to pay pensions in 20 years or 10 years or 30 years' time. Their own economies are so depressed that they're not getting the returns and they're being forced to invest in German bonds to park their money at negative interest rates. And that applies to treasuries in the US as well, let alone Japan bonds. They need to increase their yields. They need to find ways to get a relative degree of comfort that those yields will be reasonably safe because at the end of the day, they're only about matching assets and liabilities, not making stellar profits like, say, a Goldman Sachs. But there's a lot of them. And they're mainly institutions that happen to be very worried about the long-term risk of climate change, i.e. they have a bias to investments that might address that long-term risks if it meets their risk and yield requirements. And that's the opportunity we have at the moment. Huge slabs of money, $60 trillion on the table at the UN Climate Summit 18 months ago of investors saying they want climate change addressed and they stand ready to address. 
Now, don't get me wrong. It's not a simple thing to just turn. It's not a switch we can turn on here. There's a lot of engineering to make the stuff work for those funds. But that's a, that gives me hope. We're at a moment in history with interest rates so low in developed countries where most of this money is parked at the moment, the need rate, that you, know, you could not find a better time in history to rebuild the world's infrastructure. So you put those three things together and you've got a way out. Got a problem, but you've got two fantastic solution avenues. But it requires us to move very quickly. Green bonds, climate bonds, are merely an expression of investor interest in these solutions. They're an example of the kind of financial instrument that can make the difference. And that's really what we're seeing at this market, and it's working. As the market goes, everyone says, Oh, at last, something I can do. It's simple, it's easy, it addresses my stakeholder interest, and bingo, they start investing, which is why we see continual oversubscription. So, you know, we're in this essentially to try and speed up this process. We don't want the climate change sped up. We're not very happy with that. But we do need the financial change, the flow of capital, really sped up. That's got to go on super fast forward because of the other reasons I mentioned. And so how do you do that? Well, you do a lot of convening and knocking and educating about this particular market and pushing for deals to be created. We've kind of done that with a green bond market. And the next stage is to take that to governments and say, we've now got proof that our investors are interested. Here's this nascent market. Look at what's happening. Now we need you to engineer deals to come to the table so these investors can invest them. Can you please, in Toronto, in Mumbai, in Manila, in Jakarta, bring your rail plans forward and do them now, not in 10 years' time? Can you please get that water infrastructure built in Chengdu or in Sao Paulo now? Sao Paulo really needs it because it's water infrastructure for a different climate and the climate's already changed. These are the sort of things we want to do now to show the government that the investors are there and simply to show them the steps they need to take to make sure capital flows, which are very fiscally efficient, which is critically important in this time of very extremely, or I should say extremely constrained balance sheets for most governments around the world. Right. I mean, it's interesting what you say there. And I think going back to the green bonds, what exactly is a green bond? And to what extent are the monies that are raised by a green bond dedicated to green investment? And how is that all checked and verified? And how does that work? A green bond is simply an ordinary bond. This is how it developed the market, where the proceeds get allocated to green assets or projects. That's all it is, really. It's as simple as that. Any kind of bond can be a green bond. But you've got to have confidence that the money is going to the right place. In this market, there's now, I'm going to call it a convention that's developed, that green bonds generally need an independent review of the green credentials. That is, you don't trust City of America, well, it's HSBC, to issue a bond and say it's green. You make sure someone else is checking what they're saying. So with that, we're getting a a fair amount of traction with this idea. There are a couple of other conventions that have become important. For example, annual reporting to make sure nothing's changed around the environmental credibility, um, uh, those sorts of things. So there's a bit of a rule kit that's involved. The reporting and transparency rule kit have been em embodied in a thing called the Green Bond Principles, backed by banks and investors and a whole lot of other people. In the climate bonds area, we've been working on green certification, as in the green definitions. 
that underline this market. What actually qualifies in the transport sector for this label? What should qualify? From our point of view, that means a climate change perspective, specifically a science input to a climate change perspective. And we have a whole certification scheme, which has got about 400 experts around the world involved in various committees. This is a you know, domain experts in climate change and science, that sort of stuff, um, who work out what a rule kit should be that can be usable and simple enough to be usable in financial markets. Because financial markets can't deal with a great deal of complexity in terms of measurements. So we have to do that under the hood. So by the time you get to use the certification or the standards, it should work like an electric car, complicated under the hood. But if you're a bank, you just get in, put the key in, and drive. And that's kind of what we're trying to do on that side of things. So that gives you the trust factor. But, you know, there are still, you know, it's a hot market in the sense the demand is very strong amongst investors for the reasons I mentioned earlier. And this is an investor-driven market. People who are concerned about climate change looking away for a way to act on that. Um, you, 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 can, you can do some pretty weak green bonds at the moment. So it's possible. So, you know, we, the governance regime is still in development. Right, right. How does it work? Are the bonds returns connected to the green project? Because um, not necessarily. No. In fact, that's been an important differentiator. So you know, the 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 bond this market has mainly developed the idea of divorcing the structuring issues, the credit issues, from the environmental issues. So the European Investment Bank, blue chip institution, simply issues a bond and says the proceeds of this bond will only go to clean energy. Say now. You're getting a full European investment bank, which means German, credit rating on this. So it's a very safe bond. And remember that in pension fund land and investor land, safety is often more important than yield because they need certainty of capital retention. They need to be sure they're going to be able to sell this bond in 5.25 years when you retire and then be able to pay your pension. They can't do that; they're in a problem. So they'd prefer to get eight percent, but it's more important that they can be certain the money will be there in five. And they sacrifice yield to get certainty. Okay, so we're not talking about retail investors who are trying to figure out how to make fifteen percent a year to pay a mortgage off. This is a different game. So in this particular market, a good balance sheet, good creditworthiness is at a premium. The market has started off, and this is pretty consistent for bond markets starting off. By the way with getting blue chip institutions that have a very solid credit rating to do issuing bonds copying the European Investment Bank. And now we have corporates doing it. So we'll have a corporate like EDF, for example, in France, which is an energy company, which has nuclear, and it's raising a green bond, and it says the money for this green bond will only go to our wind and solar energy projects. We're not going to try and convince you nuclear is green. We're not going down there. We're saying that we actually happen to have a very large wind and solar division. This money is only going to go to them, but you're getting the full credit rating of the institution. That's how it's growing. Right. That sounds brilliant and, and really important. What's in it for the investor? Presuming, looking at it from a strictly financial perspective, their returns aren't going to be any different. So in a certain sense, why should they care whether it's a state-of-the-art R&D project or uh, rolling out a, a new factory in a developing country or you know, a fuel conservation scheme? Well, going back to the beginning, some $60 trillion of assets under management have signed statements about the concern around climate change for the planet, but more importantly, for their portfolios. 
they believe that over 40 years, there are really big risks, their ability to continue to make a return in the way the global economy is going now. There's going to be such significant shocks and dislocations that they will see their portfolios eroded. Yes, yeah, sure, we might lose a million people, a million there, but fundamentally they won't be able to pay your pension or my pension, which is their legal liability. <laughs> and as a result of that, they're saying, give us things we can invest in, which meet our legal obligations, because remember pension funds and insurance funds are highly regulated. We need to be able to pay returns that also go to meet what we see as a really serious risk involved in climate change. And they've, on the record, are saying they're ready to invest if people give them products they can invest in under their legal obligations. And that's exactly, that's it. You know, and we put out a statement and, or organized a statement in Paris, the Climate Change Conference, with $11 trillion worth of individual investors, big investors, saying that they wanted to buy green bonds. They were going to work with us to develop the green bond market to make sure it could be a much bigger market. The U.S. economy, by comparison, is about $17 trillion GDP per annum. Gives you a sense of relative scale. So, so we have a huge number of people saying, if you give me a product that I'm able to buy given the regulations you've created to govern me, I'm just going to buy it. I'm going to choose green over non-green. Crude as that. And on the back of that, we have demand in spades. So we just got to get a product now, which is when now we're back to that original thing I mentioned, we now need to get people to generate deals like they have for 150 years, but not in a green way, to generate deals that happen to be green that these people can buy. Fascinating. How, how big a market do you see this becoming potentially in the next five years or 10 well, years? The green bond and climate bond market, we expect, or you know, I better frame that differently, we believe has to be, needs to be, a trillion dollars a year by 2020. We're an activist organization. We see a freight train coming on the track for us, and we're saying to everyone, you've got to get off the track. A symbol, a symptom, a key performance indicator of getting off the track will be a trillion dollars a year issuance in 2020. So that's reasonably large. Now, that, that's not enough capital. I think the um, uh, New Climate Economy Project says that we will need to be investing between four and five trillion dollars a year in investments that we would class as green by 2025. Now, that includes government capital and bank lending and equity as well as bonds. It's important to note that these are not new projects that don't exist. A big chunk of this is shifting the investment profile of existing plans to be greener. So to give you an example, in water, you need to make sure that all water infrastructure investments going forward look at and seek to address mitigation as well as adaptation factors that they that have to be figured into their planning, reducing energy and being more resilient in the face of weather instance. And so, so you want to actually convert the water stream into a qualifying stream, which of course allows all those bonds to become green, rather than create a whole new water piece. That's what I mean by the four to five trillion. And ditto in transport, you want to shift current capital expenditure, which is totally weighted towards fossil fuel vehicles, so there's a much greater proportion of mass transit in that mix. Or electric and hydrogen as well, but actually more mass transit because the third area, which is property, 
to achieve significant improvements on energy usage around property, we expect cities to have to become much denser and to be turned into metropolises that are hopefully fabulous, fabulous to live in if we do it right, rather than Los Angeles, spread out Los Angeles, because they have a very high carbon footprint per capita. And that will require more mass transit and so on, and, and fewer cars. There's just not enough space for the sort of number of cars we have in a city like New York or Atlanta at this stage, or Sydney or Melbourne for that matter. So these are transitions over the next 30 years. Whereas we're not so worried about Los Angeles and Melbourne and Sydney. I mean, we ought to be improving on those. What we're really worried about is the new cities that are being built from scratch or being redeveloped from scratch, like Mumbai needs to be totally rebuilt in the next 20 years, are done in a way that's consistent with the future we, we have to live in. What are the few steps that you think are most important? You mentioned this market is in an early state of development. It's hot, growing very, very fast. I mean, I did read something in the Financial Times, and they, they you know, there, there were, some people have raised questions about inevitably in a fast-growing market, you know, how sustainable it is, and you know, the, the the quality of the bonds, you know, while being good at the moment, and you know, what's overseeing that. What are the next steps in terms of your priorities to helping this, you know, reach those kind of targets you're talking about? So let me just start off where I forgot to. We've had a big win in getting a market going and getting some basic ground rules set. That's step one. Now, I, I, I was describing this to someone, you know, if you watch a really clever game of football, the winning play starts off at the other end of the field. You know, you kick, 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 kick between people and bingo, the last person gets it in. It's rarely a Maradona that just runs down the middle of the field and takes the ball himself and, and throws it in. It's, t- it's team play and it's number of kicks. So if you think of it that way, we've, we've done the first couple of kicks, you know, in terms of this play to get into the goal. We've managed to get a market going. We've managed to get a couple of governments committed to growing a market like China. We've already seen 8 billion emissions roughly this year. We, as a result, think we're going to see $100 billion of issuance this year, which is a pretty cool figure if we can get to it. We saw $42 billion last year. That's the labelled green bond market. That's where people are bothering to use the marketing theme. So far, so good. Um, second win is we've managed to get the idea of getting independent review of your green credentials broadly established the market. Still a few holdouts, mainly in the US, but generally that's established the market now, which gives us a mechanism to develop confidence in the allocation of assets and, if necessary, to drive the kinds of assets that get bought into this market assets and projects. Third thing is, in Paris, we had a big win where we managed to link the green bonds agenda to individual country climate change agendas, INDCs. That's important. Thank you, Paris. The point about what Paris does is that it, it ups the ante about what needs to happen and starts governments on the job of doing proper climate change transition plans. Some have done them, most haven't, before. But now they've all put in something. So we now have a starting point. What we can do, we can work with that and turn those into investment plans, especially green infrastructure investment plans. We've now started working, for example, with the G20 Green Investment Hub, so that the global thinking about investment or infrastructure is consistent with climate change. We're working with the Mexican government on an investment plan that will be linked to their climate change plan, which is called an INDC, and we're working with a couple of other governments. This is an opportunity to go forward. 
most of this is going to require private money. What green bonds are, are the beginning of a bridge between private capital and the climate change investment plans that we have to have rolled out around the world. When I say we need governments, what I mean is that when it comes down to infrastructure planning, governments have to do that. That's their job. They have to allocate land, do zoning changes, put in regulatory measures, etc., etc., etc. In the energy stuff, they've got to put in an energy system management scheme that leads to the desired outcomes. That's what governments always do with infrastructure. There's no rocket science, nothing new here. We just haven't been focusing enough on the climate change transition issues and the filter for infrastructure decisions. So, for example, stop with the freeways already. They are not very good for cities. We have to shift government focus to building mass transit. These are examples of infrastructure decisions that flow on from a climate change plan. doesn't mean we stop building roads, but it means we have a heavy bias towards denser cities that are more resilient, where water infrastructure recycles water rather than pumps it in from the other side of the planet, where you have low emission buildings, where you try and encourage people to walk and bicycle if the environment can suit it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So this is kind of where we're at on the planet now, how we change our entire framing and then how we use the tools that we've been using for 150 years by treasuries, by ministries of finance to ensure that capital goes to the right place. I'm just going to give you, to finish up, one crude example. In the 1860s, in the US, the government decided it was important to build railways to the West Coast. That was through strategic, let's call it a geopolitical priority for a variety of reasons, helped by Goldburn on the, on the West Coast. What they did to ensure that capital and railway companies that were still new in those days, the Googles of the day, if you like, is they came up with a formula to give them land around stations so that they could get enough money back from selling off the land by creating new cities, new towns to finance the railway line. This is an interesting model. That's what a government can do with zoning. So you ended up having a land grab as the railway got built across America, which is a pretty big country. The, the, the railway company would act like a real estate agent and announce that a town was being set up here and start selling lots. And they got the cash flow from the selling lots to pay for the next stretch of the railroad. And that's how we built two major railroads across the US in double smart time. Well, actually, there's a modern precedent for that, which is what MTR, the Hong Kong government's railway authority, is doing in Shenzhen and in Hong Kong, where they are building subways and paying them in a density, paying for them by building stacks of shops, commercial buildings, and then residential towers on top of the subways which has the double benefit of getting business that is getting traffic to make the subways more affordable, but more to the point, they make enough money off selling the property to pay for the building of the subway. Models like that we've been using for 150 years. We now need to apply with a green filter to the transition. That's what government's got to do. Those kinds of investments are going to be ideal for bond financing. So when we're building a green bond market, we're building evidence of investor demand we're showing investors really do want this sort of stuff. And I can tell you, every green bond that comes out is oversubscribed. That is two times to five times the investors, in one case, 12 times as many orders as there were bonds available. And we're showing governments, reminding them that there's actually a toolkit available for them to tap this market. And then that's the story for the next five years about how we're going to successfully achieve capital inflows 
into the green infrastructure investments that form the bulk of what we have to do to address climate change. Of course, along the way, we need to ensure that the money is going to the right place. You know, there'll be attempts of frauds and scams, as they've already been in the US, as I'm sure they will be in China at some point. So standards, clear confirmation of the environmental aspects of the investments are important. This is important anyway with buildings. You know, we have building regulations for safety reasons, for earthquake protections in Japan. This is simply an extension of that. This is about how you ensure there is proper supervisory, regulatory supervision of markets to ensure that the inevitable attempts by people who are a bit desperate to defraud don't happen and don't leave us with a building or an investment that doesn't contribute to climate change that we put our money into when it should. At the moment, the WWF paper, WWF has come out for a paper recently calling for standards. We actually were part of putting that paper out. We're pushing very hard ourselves for two things. One is proper supervision by independent authorities of green claims. Most of these bonds that are coming out are put out underwritten by banks or sometimes issued by banks. Do you really want to trust the bank to decide on the green claims? Even the most well-meaning bank is caught up in short-term quarterly returns, having to get deal flow to pay people's wages and so on. There's always pressure to cut corners. That's why we have regulatory schemes. That's why the finance industry has a regulatory scheme. We need it in this as well. Clearly, we need to make sure that our understanding of quality green investments is tied to what has to happen for climate change. It's not good enough to feel good because you've painted a building green. You need to ensure that the investment in that building is actually commensurate and going to make a difference to what we know we need to do across our whole economy. And investors want this. The big investors like BlackRock that joined our us as a client bonds partner specifically wants measurements, impact reporting, so they can understand the environmental benefit of what it is that they're putting money into. There are many, many investors along this line. The bulk, in fact, of Western or OECD investors have now signed statements about the importance of climate change, the need to act seriously, and are looking for means to assess their own portfolios. So there's a bunch of architecture and engineering things we need to do like that to make sure that the market can do well. There's also a real need to ensure that understandings by governments of what they have to do are properly informed by science, which in in the UK they are through the Climate Change Committee that was set up some years ago. In many European countries they are. But frankly, in other countries like Pakistan, they're not yet. There isn't really that capacity to be able to do this. A global scheme, a global arrangement, a global guidance of what are green and climate investments will make it much easier for countries to figure out what they've got to do. But we need global consistency. Frankly, this is a global problem. So that's one of the things that a global standards and certification or clear science-based criteria can contribute to growing this market. And we need a similar approach in different countries to do it. So that's one of the things we're working on. And there are many other architectural aspects of the market. But at the end of the day, what the market does as it currently is, is show evidence of investor demand to encourage governments to get their act together. And we're seeing governments get their act together. We're seeing the Indian government get its act together and court green investors in many ways. We're seeing the Chinese government appreciate that these tools can help switch their economy to green because the government, the central government, has an extremely strong commitment to doing that. And we're seeing the French use the climate bonds taxonomy and standards as core material for their regulatory measures for the French mutual fund industry. 
We're seeing this happen in many, many places. Right. That's fascinating. The historical examples as well, the innovative models. And finally, I guess with respect to the governments, I'm just wondering if you invest in a green bond at the moment, uh, it's pooled, isn't it? The returns aren't linked to the specific environmental project. How would that work for governments in the sense that they might, you know, have a dam project or something or other energy project? Presumably the returns would be linked to the project in that case. No, not necessarily. All returns are mediated, right? So if you buy a slice of a solar farm, the mediation there happens because of feeding tariffs. So the underlying revenue model for the solar farm is effectively sorted out by government and, may, and allows you the solar farm to be profitable in the context of, of solar prices in some countries still being higher, like in Northern Europe. So that's mediated. There are many ways you can mediate. You can also mediate by not providing a subsidy for the solar farm, but providing a subsidy for the for the financing instrument. So in the US, you can buy a, a municipal bond, which gives you a tax credit, which means that if you're, if you're earning 50,000 pounds a year or 50,000 euros a year, you can get a tax benefit buying that bond because the interest rate is tax deductible. Things like this you can do. These are things governments do all the time to make investments more attractive. Sometimes it's regulatory measures. So in, um, in India, insurance funds aren't allowed to invest in anything that's lower than AA credit rating. Now, one of the things they could do, one of the things the Chinese government is considering, is allowing for green investments, they can go down to A. That's pretty safe still, you know, and it's still investment grade, but it's an exemption to drive investments into green economy things for broader policy priority reasons. There's dozens of tools like that, right? So when you buy a bond, Whatever sort of bond you get, there's likely to be some form of government mediation in there. It's just that it's their frame. So, so your answer, the, to, to crudely answer your question, you can now buy asset-backed bonds. That is bonds where the revenue is directly tied to the specific asset. The bulk of the market so far is what you call a corporate bond, where the corporation promises to invest the money in certain sort of assets, but they guarantee the return as a corporation. As a bridging mechanism, while we get used to the underlying credit wilderness, this is actually quite important. So if you're, and, and, and I wrote an article last week encouraging fossil fuel companies to issue green bonds. I'll give you an example. Total, which is a, a French fossil fuel company, happens to own the world's second largest solar developer. Now, if they issue bonds that are Total bonds and the proceeds go to the solar developer, what they're actually doing is using a fossil fuel-backed balance sheet. We might argue it's not fully priced, but the market thinks it's safe because it's got 20 years of, of history. And they're raising cheaper money than would otherwise be able to be raised to invest in solar. Now, that is a transition strategy. That's what we need. So the corporate bond, and this applies to the government bond as well, where there is an organisation with a good credit rating that provides a guarantee of some sort for the bond where the monies are going to develop a green asset, is a very important part of this change. So all a sovereign is doing, a government, when they issue a bond, is they're saying, we've got a really good credit rating because we're a government. We can raise money at 0.5% if you're in Germany or minus percent or, or maybe 0.6% or maybe it's 4%, whatever it is. We've got a better credit rating than the private sector. We're now put the money into, the, into these projects and that's an appropriate kind of way to improve the credit rating. Because you've got to understand, the stuff we've got to do is sort of bog obvious, but from a credit perspective, there's no, there's, no, there's no precedent for this. From a credit perspective, 
to build out what we have to do in double quick time looks risky. And that's because credit ratings are done on 20-year risk profiles. They look backwards for 20 years, see how that asset's performed, and they make a judgment on the future. But if you were suddenly building 10 railways in Toronto and the only credit history around shows one railway, people are scratching their head and thinking, how the hell do I assess the credit worthiness? So what they do is they down, they notch it down. They say, okay, it's got to be double B or triple B. It can't be double A because it's also new and novel. That's where the governments or the corporations or the development banks step in and say, well, we've got to do it. The cost of capital, if we factor in that kind of risk, is too high. We will provide a guarantee here or a partial guarantee or there's all sorts of clever things I can talk to you about that they can do, which will improve the credit rating and therefore reduce the cost of capital. Now, in a high interest rate environment like Nigeria or India or Brazil, this is really important because if you build a solar thermal power plant in India, it's half the capital cost of a solar farm. I mean, the running costs are higher because you've got to buy coal every year. Now, because CapEx, because interest rates in India are like 14% or 10%, or 6% for sovereigns, if you like, but interest rates to borrow money are 14%. That means that over the cost of a solar farm, 20-year lifetime cost, two-thirds of the cost goes just in interest payments, not in paying back the capital, just in interest payments. If you could bring that cost down, that interest cost down to, say, 7%, which is a little bit higher than government rates, you save a third the lifetime cost of that solar plant. That is incredible. And suddenly solar becomes profitable or rather comparable to uh, a thermal power plant. These are the sort of measures we have to use in different markets to make it work. And so that's why a government bond or a corporate bond or a development bank bond where you're using a really solid balance sheet to take on a bit of risk is so critical to this transition. It's efficient. It doesn't require tax money. It's just, just a guarantee. And you mentioned, uh, and it seems to be clear that the government has an array of tools and techniques that are, aren't new, but they already have that they can apply. How do you shift government focus? How, how well is that going? You talked about COP21, the number of signatories and so forth. What's your overall assessment? Well, you know, it is challenging, but there are, are governments around the world that are committed to acting. What we're doing at the moment is we're working with a small number of governments to show the others what could be done. So in Mexico, we're working with the National Climate Change Commission on a green investment plan. We're linking that to the city of Mexico's metropolitan rail plans and water infrastructure plans. And we will be bringing to New York and possibly London, depending what how Brexit affects the financial centre here, uh, to meet investors, various green bond issuers and other kinds of financiers of infrastructure in Mexico to seek overseas capital. Uh, to tie it to the plan. So Mexico's keen, Brazil's keen, Kenya's keen, Germany's keen. All we need in this next phase is a small number of countries to show how it's done and show how they can get the capital from the private sector to finance the climate transition, to finance their climate change plan. The rest of the world is worried about this. They're going to do it, frankly. They're going to do it. Now, we may not convince the US Congress. We'll see what happens in the November elections. But largely around the world, governments are concerned about climate change and looking for fiscally efficient means of acting on it. They've largely been told it's got to be instituting carbon price, which is challenging and complicated and doesn't work and gets gamed. Sure, it'd be fantastic, but it's a hard job. 
They've been told they've got to use taxpayers' funds to do stuff. That's hard because they're already maxed out on their debt as a rule. If they can see that a very fiscally efficient pact between private sectors and governments can work in a country like Mexico, frankly, they're going to copy. And that's what we're working on. And, you know, we're getting we're getting a lot of interest. You know, I mean, we have um, uh, the French government's been very good at this and pushing the line uh, and trying to figure out how to make this work and what the regulatory settings are for them and so on. Um, the Chinese government has been fantastic on this, so that the Central Bank of China has got a big program of green finance, regulation, and other supportive initiatives. China's looking at introducing in, uh, insurance liabilities so that companies have to take out environmental insurance and can be sued if they don't um, if they don't um, um, take corrective action to minimise their liability. That effectively makes the insurers part of the regulatory environment because the insurers have to mitigate their risk on writing policies, which they're going to have to write, and so they're going to be querying companies. And what are they doing? Are they pumping dye into the river here? These are examples of measures that governments are taking, and, and China's excruciatingly aware of measures around climate change, not just cleaning up the environment. So, you know, we've got a lot of hope here. I mean, the, the Indian government has these fantastic ambitions about growing out, growing up the solar industry, the wind industry, hydro and rail, the rail plans, they've got a fantastic. If we can, the West can help them by giving them capital to do this, to ensure that they get it done, then we can see, um, I can see a huge change very quickly. I don't want to underplay the work involved in doing this. This is a huge global transition. We are talking about retooling the world's economy in 30 years, right? This is a big job. But the toolkit to do it is there. That's the good thing. That's That gives me hope. And, you know, I just got to tell you, just to finish up, the money's there. We have more capital available in the world today than ever in the history of humankind. And the bulk of that capital is sitting in Europe, in Japan, in North America, in negative interest rate bonds or in low interest rate environments. Those people can't pay their pensions that way. They're not going to be able to pay your pension or my pension or our insurance policies that way. They need yield. The way we get yield and higher interest rates is we invent projects, infrastructure projects that the world happens to need at this particular moment that can give them a little bit of return. We're not talking about Goldman Sachs profits. We're talking about 3% and 4% and 5% returns. That can be done. A lot of work to doing it, but at least there's a plan through this. Well, that's a great vision, Sean. Seems like you're well on your way. Still a lot of work to do, as you say, but that's fascinating to speak to you today. And thank you so much for sharing your experience and insights on the sustainability agenda. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it and great show and I wish you all success. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. Please sign up at the sustainabilityagenda.com website or on iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.